Okay, here we go. We're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, Recovering Awe is our teaching series. And we are in chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. We'll work completely through that chapter. So the first weekend we talked about meaning. Last weekend we talked about happiness. This weekend we're talking about hope. You can live 40 days without food. You can live just a few days without water. You can live four to six minutes without oxygen. But you can't live a single moment without hope. Can't live a single moment without hope. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. How you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe about your future. You can't avoid that. It tells us in uh, Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Desires fulfilled is a tree of life. And so what's interesting about hope is that the, the Bible's definition of hope is quite different from ours. The Bible's definition of hope is, uh, well, let's start with our definition. Our definition is wishful thinking. I hope, I hope it happens, kind of wishful thinking, but the Bible defines hope as Confident, joyful expectation in the person and promises of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's like, it's going to happen. This is what I'm looking to, and I'm looking to Christ and his promises. And so you can see where we're headed with this uh, study. We're going to read the text, and then we're going to talk about false philosophies of suffering, because this is about suffering. How do you get through suffering? How can I have hope even in the midst of suffering? We're going to look at also biblical view of suffering. And then I want to spend most of our time on the, on the tail end of this, where we talk about living a hope-filled life, even in suffering. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, once again, we, we absolutely love you. We love you because you first loved us. You pursued us with, with an amazing, overwhelming love. And as stated in Romans 15, 13, may you, the God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope, that our lives would overflow with hope, a confident, joyful expectation in the person and promises of our Savior Jesus. We pray these things in his name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this. Uh, let's, um, let's read through the text, and we're going to read completely through. I'll, I'll try not to comment too much as we work through this, but uh, a time for everything, Chapter 3, verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Okay, I got to make a comment there. Okay, I'm sorry. Because you guys, you guys know that there is a song in the 60s that was based on this text. Anybody, anybody old like me that remember that? You don't have to be old to remember that. that was, what, was, what was the name of the band that wrote the song? The Birds. And then the song was titled what? Turn, turn, turn. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Anybody want to come up and sing it? In everything, turn, turn, turn. Do, 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 do. There you go. Hey, you got it. You guys are, man. That's awesome. So that's, that's based on this text here. They wrote that song, and so, uh, so he goes on and says, A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, 
and a time to laugh. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to uh, tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. It almost sounds like, oh, that's a beautiful poem, but actually what's uh, this uh, writer here, Solomon, is, is struggling here a bit with this. What he's saying here is that God is in charge of all seasons and times, but, but life is meaningless apart from God. If, if you go through these seasons and times of your life and you don't have God, it's all meaningless. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, but what gain has the worker from his toil? So that's one of the big struggles he's working through. He says, I'm, you know, it almost feels like we're, we're doing circles in a cul-de-sac here. We're, we're, we're not making any progress. And sometimes we feel like that. No doubt you have felt like that, maybe relationally or financially or spiritually. It's just like seasons and times and they just come and go and here we are once again. And that's a little bit of what he's talking about here. And as you remember, this whole book is about under the sun, that when we try to live life under the sun apart from God, it is meaningless. Verse 10, he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, this next verse is really quite quite a beautiful verse, quite an insightful verse. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's, there's three, I, we could teach a whole sermon, many sermons, just on those three points right there in that verse. Pretty powerful. Let me just mention one. I mentioned it last week because we used this verse. Eternity is in your heart. There's a hole in your soul that nothing in creation, there's no romance, there's no finance, there's no career advancement or anything that can satisfy you. You were created by God for God to live your life for his glory. And that, that's where you're going to find your greatest satisfaction. You can chase it. You can chase it the rest of your life. And you're not going to find it. That's what he's saying here. It's only in him. Because eternity has been placed in your soul. And uh, he goes on. He says, the second part of that is just saying, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done. We're, we're clueless about what God's up to a lot of times. Unless we come back to the scripture. Uh, his ways are as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and his ways above our thoughts and ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them. So he's, he's grappling with this. He's struggling with how do we make progress? How can we get, get some meaning in our life with all the seasons and times? He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does, and he gets into God's sovereignty here because he's going to move and transition into more of the injustices that surround us. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. 
God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. That last phrase uh, from the New King James Version actually says, God will call the past into account. Verse 16, moreover I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. So, he's, so here's what he's grappling with. So not only is, am I not making any progress in life, I feel like I'm just doing circles in a cul-de-sac somewhere, but now what, how do I deal with all the injustices that are on this planet? Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing this is a test. Life is a test, a trust, a temporary assignment. So he's testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So now he's going to emphasize our mortality, that is our bodies. And he's going to compare us to animals for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And the man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here's, here's what he's saying here. And I, If you've been to a funeral, oftentimes you'll hear people say some pretty outlandish things, really, at funerals. That's when things get really crazy. And people's weird beliefs come out at funerals. And, uh, and usually not necessarily the place to try to correct those, but, but I've gone to funerals before where people say, well, he's in a better place. Or he's looking down on us. Or any number of things like that. And my question is, how do you know? What are you basing that on? That's what he's doing here. In a Socratic way, he's trying to push us out to the furthest implication of our beliefs. What's the basis of your belief? What's the credibility of your creed? What's the foundation of your faith? Oh, you believe that? You believe people actually go to a better place? Well, what, what's the basis of that? Did you just like, pull that out of your head? I mean... And, 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 and that's a, probably a good question later on down the road to ask them. I say, so where do, you, where do you base that on? Well, I read it in a book, or my parents told me, or where did your parents get it? Where, what was the basis of that book? Who, who wrote that? Th those are good questions. Why do you believe what you believe? He's going to push us all the way to the edge and say, hey, do you have a good solid family? What's the authority? The, your feelings aren't the authority. Your desires aren't the authority. There's got to be an ultimate authority somewhere. And so that's what he's wanting to do here. And so verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Later on, he answers those questions, but he's wanting us to grapple with those questions. This is God's word to us this morning. And so the two things that he's dealing with here is what, what do you do when your life, with your life when you see no progress or no justice. No progress, verse 9. No justice, verse 16. So let me put it a little different way because I want this to kind of really get a hold of you this morning. See, it makes sense. It makes sense that 
that a person who lies, cheats, and steals can't get ahead in life. That makes sense to us. And it makes sense that a terrorist would be killed by his own bomb. And it makes sense that a drunk driver would crash into a tree, crippling him for life. It makes sense that a person who uses recreational drugs destroys his mind and body prematurely. That makes sense. But what about a person who is honest, respectable, works hard, but can't seem to get ahead in life? What about the innocent Christian families, 69 in all, many of them were kids, murdered at an amusement park in Pakistan by the Taliban? It just happened within the last month. If you watch that on the news, it was a bloodbath. It was terrible. It was horrendous. What about, and this was something that happened quite a number of years ago, what about a busload of kids coming home from summer camp struck by a drunk driver, igniting the bus into flames, killing almost every person on the bus. How do, you, how do you deal with that? What about the person who is conscientious with their eating, exercise, and rest, but dies prematurely of cancer? So, here, here's another way of looking at that. What do you do when life doesn't make sense and people seemingly get away with murder? Or here, here's another way of saying it. What do you do when, when life seems like a random, out-of-control Crapshoot. Does it ever feel like that sometimes? You guys know what a crapshoot is. I wasn't cussing. It's just, it's, it's taste, dice and throwing it, just like, whatever, hey, come on. Sometimes we feel like that. So what do you do? How do you grapple with that? And we're going to learn in this study. Here's the first thing. Let me give you some false philosophies of suffering that we see in our culture around the world today. The first one is, I'm going to run through this pretty quickly, get ready to write fast. I gave you enough information, you can study this later. But the first one is a monistic view, it's deny it. This is Eastern philosophy that says suffering is an illusion and you must exercise mind over matter to deny it. That's Eastern philosophy, so deny it. The next one would be the Stoic view, and it would say endure it. Suffering is real, but it's a crapshoot because we are nothing more than a collection of molecules. We're here by uh, random, ch random chance, unlimited time. And uh, so, yeah, sorry, that's what you, you know, that's what you have to face. And so just endure it, hang in there. Sorry for you. And that's that stoic kind of a view. Here's the next one is the dualistic view. And that's forgive God for it. Now keep in mind, these are false philosophies of suffering. Forgive God for it. So there are, and this is what this view says, there are two opposite and equal forces working against each other, good and evil, or you might say God and Satan. And sometimes Satan or evil gets the upper hand on good or God. And oftentimes it's explained like this, that... Uh, that, well, either God's good and not all-powerful, or he's all-powerful, but he's not very good. That's why we have the suffering. That's, that's the argument there. It's, it's a dualistic view, which is not biblical. But there are people that embrace that and say that it is bi biblical. The next one is existentialism, which is uh, really a, a big view in our culture today. Existentialism view is defy it. Suffering is senseless, but I will be full of purpose in the face of suffering. Um, this is where you saw that, remember the terrorist in Boston, the Boston Strong? It really smacked of this existentialism. In the face of this, we will be strong. And I mean, and it's, you know, it's good. The problem is, is that if there is no God, then what's the use? 
It doesn't matter. If we came from insignificance and we're going to insignificance, Boston Strong, in the long run, it's pretty meaningless. But, but most people haven't thought it out to, to its furthest implication. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to do that. It's uh, be courageous and moral in the face of suffering. Well, why? If you're just going to be gone after this, never to return. And, uh, but that's pretty uh, dominant in our culture today. And then the hedonistic view is another one that's, that's dominant in our culture today. Avoid it. You avoid it by being selfish and avoiding commitments. If something is unfulfilling, you get out. Boom. That's why the divorce rate is so high. Ah, this is unfulfilling. We fell out of love. We're going to do our, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to chase something else. That's, that's uh, pretty common. And then there's the romanticist view, and that's confess it. It works like this. Good people have good things, have good lives, and bad people have bad lives. If you're suffering, it's because you're sinning. <laughs> this is Job's miserable friends. <laughs> Thank you very much for helping me with my uh, suffering. Thank you so much. You, you got a bad life? Well, you deserve it. You probably have sin in your life. And that's what Job's miserable comforters uh, said to, to him. I mean, they beat the living daylights out of them. If you have a small group that says that, get out of that small group, okay? And report them to Darren, okay? Not to me. Darren will come over there and pound on them. Say, what the heck? Get your theology right. That's not true. Because listen, you can live a good life and still experience suffering. Because Job lived a very, very good life. And because we live in a fallen world, crap happens, Okay? Because we live in a fallen world. That should awaken us to the reality and our need for God when bad things happen around us. We live in a fallen world. You can do all the right things and still have suffering in your life. And so, yeah, certainly you can sin and, and that will invite some suffering into your life. But that's not always the case. And so we need to be not so reductionistic in our dealing with suffering. And so that's the romanticist view. Confess it. Oh, I like this one. This is another one. Political view. Blame it. You know, this world would be a lot better. Actually, this country would be better if it wasn't for those Republicans. Those Democrats, those liberal Democrats. I heard somebody say amen over there. But that's, somebody is the cause of this suffering. That somebody can be a race, gender, party, or group. So we blame it on a group of people. And not to say that that group of people maybe is causing some of the difficulty, but it's much, it's not so, don't be so reductionistic once again. It's multi-layered. It's much deeper than that. There's much more going on. There's good and bad in both the Republican and the Democratic Party and Libertarian and whatever party you embrace. And you can see why this whole idea, when this happens, is that we tend to deify certain people that are in our party and demonize the people that are in the other party. That shows us that we've become idolatrous in our uh, politics, and so we look for people to blame. And then the last one here that we're going to deal with is masochistic view. You welcome it. These are the type of people that don't feel alive or worthwhile unless they are suffering. And because I suffer, I'm deep, complicated, and better than you. <laughs> and so what's fascinating about each of these views is that uh, there are Christian versions of all of these. For instance, the Christian uh, monistic version of deny it uh, from the health and wealth gospel that uh, if you're sick, don't say you're sick. Because if you're sick, don't say you're sick because then you'll get more sick. 
So you don't say it, but I am sick. Yeah, but don't say it. Because if you say it, so it's, there's almost kind of this form of denial. It's, it's whacked, okay? It's just crazy. Just because I say it doesn't mean I'm going to get sick, okay? And I need to be willing to admit the fact of something that is reality. I'm sick. I'm not feeling very good. Don't say that. Don't confess that. That's crazy making, okay? It's like if I'm sick, I'm, gonna, I'm sick. And, and yeah, there's certain, you know, there's certain positive things that we need to do in the midst of that. But don't deny reality. But that's, that's, uh, that's part of that. Another uh, one that would be kind of, uh, like I said, there's, uh, there are Christian versions of all of these. The Christian hedonistic version of avoid it by keeping your options open. You don't want to be inconvenienced by commitment. So we'll just kind of float around from church to church. We won't really get committed. Or, or they do, you, people do that in relationships. But here's what's interesting. All these false philosophies are suffering, uh, of suffering are denying one or both of two biblical truths about God. Let's, let's look at this. Biblical view of suffering. Here's the first one. God is the all-powerful and all-knowing judge of history whose timing is perfect. He's the judge of history. Verse 15, God will call the past into account. Verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a fascinating little scene in Jesus' life where he confronts some demons, and he's conversing with some demons. It's actually found in Matthew 8.29. And the demons uh, tell Jesus, have you... Have you come, in fact, it says, have you come here to torment us before the time? <laughs> the demons knew that there's a time coming. There's a judgment time coming. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19, we looked at this a few weeks back, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, so the idea of God being the judge of history, he's all-powerful, all all-knowing judge of history whose timing is perfect. Because God is creator, he has the right to, to mete out judgment, to give out judgment. Because he is all-knowing, he has the ability to discern judgment. And because he's all-powerful, he has the power to execute judgment. But our, our, the problem that we have, and I, I think we have a hard time embracing that, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but sometimes we just wonder, well, why does God delay judgment? Why does God delay judgment? Because I know a few people that need to get it. <laughs> Anybody there? It's like, why do those people just seem to get away with murder? Why does he delay judgment? I don't know, but I'm glad he waited long enough for me to become a Christian. And for you, too. And in fact, I know that it tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. The reason why he delays judgment is because he's pursuing us and reaching out to us. But at some moment in time, he's going to say, boom, it's over, that's it. Now, let me ask you this. How do you know you're living according to this doctrine that God is the judge of history. What would be evidence in your life that you're not living according to that doctrine? Turn to the folks sitting next to you real quick. I'm gonna give you just about 20 seconds to do this and see if they know the answer to that question. What would be some things in your life that would be evidence because of that? Real quick, do that. Okay, is that, is that a hard question? It shouldn't be. There should be things that come to mind. Here's, here's my answer for you. This is how you know you're not living in the reality 
of the, the fact that God is all-powerful, all-knowing judge of history whose timing is perfect is that you will be, you will be bitter towards those who have hurt you. And bitterness is the fact that you are not waiting for judgment day, you are having it now with your bitterness. And in your bitterness, you are playing judge, jury, and jailer because you know what those people deserve. And I can't believe that they did this to me. And ah, that's bitterness. And it's because you don't understand this doctrine. And the more you understand this doctrine, the more you will pity them. Because you will begin to realize, wait a minute, they messed with me and my daddy will get them. See, that, that's the idea of my daddy, my father in heaven is going to balance the books, settle the score, make things right, and you will begin to pity them. We talked about this in a, a few weeks ago at the end of our relationship series. Remember that series, A, a Mess Worth Making? At the very end of that series, we talked about forgiveness. I would encourage you to go back to that and walk through that on what that means in forgiveness. But that's, that's one of the things uh, right there. Here's the next uh, point. These are easy to remember. So judge of history. The next one is weaver of history. God is the infinitely wise and perfectly loving weaver of history who is working all things for our good and his glory. So verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, when you fill in the blank, look up here because you got to get this. You got to understand. I believe that there will be a time, and there's, t- there's times in my life that I look back, I look back in my life, and I, went, I had some things in my life happen that were horrible. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, and yet they're beautiful as I look back on those things in what God has done. D- does that make sense? So, so I'm thinking, I'm getting glimpses like that now. I went through some horrible times, and yet when I look back on it, I begin to see what he did through all of that time. And I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, you know, because of how difficult that was. And yet I can't help but think, and I know this for a fact based on what the Scriptures teach, that one of these days when you come face to face with your Savior, the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you, I can't help but think you're going to go, oh my goodness, that is... That's the most wonderful, most beautiful thing I could have ever imagined. You, you mean to tell me all that junk that w- went down in my life, that's what, you've, that's what you were doing? I, I believe those will be the first words that come out of our mouths when we, when we come face to face with our Savior. It's like, oh, now I know. Now I see. He makes all things beautiful. And it's time, verses 14 through 15, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. This is a, this is a tough one because uh, this is what Christianity teaches. Christianity believes that historical events are determined by God through our choices. And the Bible teaches both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. It's a mystery. But one of the ways that I'm able to kind of work this out, it, it, those two... Uh, doctrines, human responsibility, divine uh, sovereignty, they work together like two pedals on a bike. And so we are to make responsible choices and then leave the results in in God's hands. So uh, for instance, uh, here's a verse that talks about that, Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for battle, you know how the rest goes, but victory belongs in the hands of the Lord. So, So you need to be responsible and yet ultimately you leave the outcome in God's hands. 
and, and you trust him with those things. But here's the thing that I want you to keep in mind as it relates to God being the weaver of history, and this is what we struggle with probably the most, is that most of life, as we work through the issues of life, most of life is like looking under a weaver's loom. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about there? You know what a weaver's loom is? A loom, a frame for weaving fabrics. When you're looking on the underside of that weaver's loom, what do you see? Is that beautiful? Is it beautiful? No, it's a mess. It's a mess. It doesn't make any sense. You don't see the pattern. You don't see anything. You, what do you see? You see knots. You see snarls. You see... You see loose ends, you see frays, but from time to time when you begin to read God's word and the Holy Spirit begins to make it alive to your heart, it's almost like he's allowing you to peer over the loom where, where you can begin to see symmetry and color, design, and, and beauty. Here's another couple verses to put on your notes here. I was reading this in, uh, a few months ago and it was pretty astounding verses. It's Psalm 77, 13... Verse 13 and verse 19, Psalm 77, verses 13 and 19. This is what it says, basically it's saying this, that God's ways are holy and hidden. In those two verses, it's telling us that God's ways are holy, that is, they're perfect and unopposed, and they're hidden, they're hard to see. That you may not know the way in which you are going or that he's leading you, but you, listen to me, you can trust your guide. He gave his life for you. So you can trust him. Us questioning God's ways is like a seven-year-old questioning the mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist. Just to give you kind of a glimpse. I love what John Newton, who wrote the, the song Amazing Grace, he says, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Speaking, it's speaking of God's sovereignty. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So how do you know that you're living, that, how do you know that you're not living according to this doctrine that God is the weaver of history? Turn to the people sitting next to you real quick and ask that question. See if they know the answer to that question. How do you know you're not living according to that doctrine? Okay, so you know that you're, living, uh, you're not living according to the doctrine that God is, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful judge of history whose timing is perfect when you have bitterness towards people in your life and you're having a hard time working through the forgiveness is that at that moment, you're not waiting for judgment day, you're having it right then with your bitterness. In this one, what came to mind here? That he's the weaver of history. How about inordinate worry? Would that be a sign that you're not trusting him? Yeah, because worry believes that God is going to get it wrong. So when you're worried and stressed out, you're so afraid that God somehow is not going to get this right. He's not going to weave this circumstance and work through this, these people. And, oh. and then the other one would be not just worry, but also bitterness. Bitterness believes that God did get it wrong. Did you know there's a lot of people angry at God? So that's, that would be evidence that you're not living out that doctrine. Now let's, let's walk through this next part, living a hope-filled life even in suffering. Uh, one of my favorite analogies, it's been a while since I've used it, so let me use it here this morning, is that my, uh, my analogy of playing cards. I did not play cards growing up because I didn't want to go to hell. And uh, anybody like that? Okay. And so my wife uh, was a card shark. And I told her, you're going to hell. Unless you become like me and stop playing cards. I, I'm joking because they didn't say that. But she taught me how to play cards. 
And they used to, she grew up in a family that they played cards and they had a lot of fun and, and all of that. And so she taught me how to play cards. We played poker. Anybody like to play poker? Okay, so, you know, so she taught me some of those games. It was, and it was a lot of fun. But here's the analogy that I want you to understand is that when you have a winning hand, regardless of the cards you have been dealt, it doesn't matter what cards you've been dealt, does it? As long as you have better cards than everybody else. And I was never good at it because I didn't have that poker face. He was like, I'd get a, I'd get a good set of cards. It's like, ah! <laughs> I'm going to whip you guys. You guys are going down. So here's my analogy is that when you have a winning hand, regardless of the cards you've been dealt, you're not uptight and nervous. You just enjoy the game. We've been dealt, regardless of the cards you've been dealt, you have a winning hand in Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's it. So regardless of what cards you've been dealt, the Bible says you got a winning hand. So you can do that. <laughs> that sounds a little wicked, doesn't it? It's like, it's like I'm winning. I'm winning. I'm, I'm winning in life and all that God has given to me. God plus nothing equals everything. I mean, do you believe that? I do. Not always. Lord, help me. But man, it, it makes all the difference in your life. Christians should be the most hope-filled people in this world. Jeremiah 29, 11. That's a memory verse. Yep, it's a good verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Do you know the people that he's saying that to? These people are in exile. This is the worst possible scenario for their lives. And yet he's saying, hey, listen, got you covered. I've dealt a winning hand to you. You're going to win through this. I'm using this in your life. So here's some things that we need to keep in mind if that's true. Now let me remind you of the last two messages because they play into this. You can get the DB app and download these and, and listen to them if you weren't here. But part one, we talked about meaning. Remember we said that Christianity gives us a meaning in life that is indestructible. Remember that? It's just been a couple weeks ago. Three of us remember that. Okay, so let me, some of you need to listen to that message again, maybe a few hundred times. But remember in that, that meaning is that my bad things will work out for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me and the best is yet to come. And then last weekend we talked about part two of this. We talked about happiness and let me summarize it. Happiness isn't the absence of problems but the presence of Christ. It's just cultivating this, this intimacy with him and knowing that he's in my life. Because you guys know this, that if the basis of your happiness is Jesus... You'll never lose your happiness because you can't lose him, regardless of your circumstances. Okay, so we'll build on that. Now, let me give you the, the next point here, is that as we work out this and begin to have this hope, even in the midst of suffering, you can't, don't, don't focus on the temporal, but on God's eternal plan. I could not say that enough because we live in a secular society. You know what secularism is? It's nowism. We live for now. We live for the weekend. We're all about comfort. And, and so we struggle with this. We don't look beyond the weekend. We don't look beyond the year. We don't look into eternity very often. And that's what he's wanting us to do. Don't focus on the temporal, but on God's eternal plan. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 would be some good verses to, to meditate on and reflect on. This is what he says. 
He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day after day. How many feel like you're wasting away outwardly? You're old like me. Oh, come on. I, I'm, I, I've been around some of you and I've watched you waste away outwardly. If you've been here for 25 years like me, you've watched me waste away outwardly. Now, if you're 21, you probably can't say that. You know, you're not wasting away outwardly, but wait until you turn 31 and 41. We can't wait. But notice what he says. He says, though we are wasting away outwardly, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Is that true about you? Are you finding that his love is so much sweeter now? than ever before. That's the point that he's making. And then, he, and then he goes on and he says, he says, for our light and momentary trials. Now think about the, the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You would probably not call it light and momentary, would you? It didn't seem too light and momentary, but light and momentary in light of eternity. That's what he's saying. For our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we do not fix our eyes on what is unseen, but what, I, uh, what is seen, but what is un unseen, because what is seen is temporal, what is unseen is eternal. That's, those are important verses. Those are great verses. It's impossible to understand what God is up to and not lose heart in suffering if the reality of eternity is missing from your worldview. Now listen to me. God will always, always sacrifice your temporal for the sake of your eternal. I mean, what's 20 years? What's 30 years? What's 50 years? What's 70 years of suffering in light of a billion years of bliss with him for all eternity? See, that's the perspective that we need to have when, it, when we're dealing with, with suffering. Always keep the bigger picture in mind. Here's the next one. Don't let your lack of understanding keep you from enjoying life. I know that people that have gone through difficulty and they're just trying to figure it out. Why did this happen? What's going on? If I could just understand, I know I could get through it. Wait, 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 wait. You might not ever understand this side of eternity. Don't let your lack of understanding keep you from enjoying life. Verse 12, there's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as you live. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does it say? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't do what? Don't lean on your own understanding. The Bible's clear. Don't try to figure it all out. You're not going to be able to figure it out. Don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trusting God with all of your heart and not leaning on your own understanding draws attention to his trustworthiness. He's trustworthy. See, the question of the survival of your faith depends on this. Can you walk by faith in God's promises even when you can't see or feel anything? That's a real test of your faith. And just because you can't see a purpose for suffering doesn't mean there can't be one. Did you know that Job, Old Testament book, never saw why he was suffering? We see behind the scenes. We know exactly why he's suffering. He never saw why he was suffering. But he saw God, and that was enough. He saw that God is the judge and weaver of history. Here's the next point. Don't forget that an attitude of gratitude for God's many gifts invariably kindles happiness. 
Verse 13, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all your toil. This is God's gift to man. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's hard to make yourself happy when you're going through difficulties. But it's not hard to choose to give thanks, to give thanks which kindles happiness. I like, as one writer put it, no amount of regret can change the past. No amount of anxiety can change the future. But any amount of gratitude can change the present. Next point in your notes, don't fear what may happen in life. Fear God. How many worry about their kids? Okay. There's a, there's a, yeah, I do. I worry my, my daughter lives in Tucson. I worry about, you know, my sons and their wives. And now I've got grandkids. I've got grandkids to worry about. Stop having grandkids, okay? <laughs> I'm stressed out. No, I love having grandkids. I'm glad that we had kids, but it's just like, oh my goodness. It had been a lot easier if I just would have stayed single, huh? He said, I added a wife, and then I had to worry about having a wife, and then we had kids, and I had to start worrying about that. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It really comes down to you're going to fear God. This is what's fascinating about this, and, and don't fear what may happen in life, fear God. Verses 14 through 15, he is the infinitely and wise and perfectly loving weaver of history. I've got to believe that. There's a verse that I came across a number of uh, months ago that was really helpful for me. Psalm 112, 6 through 8. For the righteous will never be moved. So it speaks of stability, strength. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. I don't know, maybe it was my time on the fire department. I saw a lot of bad stuff happen. And so there's that tendency to be almost, have that paranoia. It's like, watch, uh, going on drownings and worried about my kids and grandkids and, and all of these things. It's just like, ah. So there's a balance here. There's almost this, if you, if you push uh, sovereignty of God to an extreme, you become fatalistic and you're just passive. What's the use? God's sovereign. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. Well, that's not, that's not accurate view of God's sovereignty. But if you push the responsibility of man to an extreme, to the exclusion of God's sovereignty, you're going to freak out. I mean, if it's up to you, you're going you're gonna to have a lot of paranoia. But this is what you need. You need to be alert but calm. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Be responsible and yet trust him. Rest in him. He's the judge of history. He's the weaver of history. And that's just giving you an opportunity to put your heart closer to his. Don't fret over injustice as judgment is coming. Verses 16 through 17. God is the all-powerful and all-knowing judge of history. We've talked about that. This is a phenomenal text here. Psalm 73, 3, and then 17. Listen to what he says. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How do those wicked people... Oh my goodness, they just prosper. And that's what he was saying. He's just like, oh my goodness, look at their lives. They can do whatever they want. They just, they just shrug at God. They just flip God off and do their own thing. And so that's what he's saying. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then you jump to verse 17 of chapter 73. And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. 
And I go, oh, look where they're headed. God's the judge. Here's the last one. Don't fail the test. Verse 18 says God is testing us. God's glory is best displayed in lives that are most satisfied in him in all circumstances. Verse 22, there is nothing better than to rejoice in our work for that is our lot. Listen to what he says here. I love these verses and this is where we'll conclude and we're going to transition into some communion here in just a moment. But this is what he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What are, what are the jars of clay? A uh, uh, Christian rock band. Uh, but uh, no, jars of clay are our bodies. But what's the treasure? It's Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Here's the best answer. The best answer to our suffering is what we're going to take in a minute is communion. And it's, it represents the suffering of Jesus. Last point on your notes. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and suffer for us so that he could end evil without ending us in the final judgment. So when he came the first time, he came to bear our judgment. But listen to me. If you reject him, if you reject him, you will face his judgment in the future. It's a matter of time. And all you need to do is to put your faith in Jesus and to follow him and make him the Lord of your life. By grace, through faith in Christ, you don't have to face the final judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. We prepare our hearts for communion this morning. God, thank you so much. You loved us so much and you hated suffering that you were willing to come down and suffer for us so that you could end evil without ending us in the final judgment. In justice, God, you passed the required sentence of death on our sin, but in mercy, you took that punishment yourself on the cross. What amazing love. We thank you for that, God. We enter into the fullness of life that we have as a result of that, that even in suffering, we can find satisfaction because we have you in our lives. May you be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you, even in difficult times. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know how this works, I think, for most of you. If you don't, there's three stations. Find your way up here. Grab the communion elements. They're double cups, so make sure you grab both. The bottom one has the bread. The top one has the juice. And then take it back to your seat, and then I will walk us through the process and then dismiss us. So which one of these are you struggling with the, the most? Maybe both of them. Are you struggling with the fact that he's the judge of history? You have bitterness, you've been hurt. That's understandable to have bitterness towards someone, but you, you, need, you need desperately to work through that forgiveness and understand what awaits your perpetrator who is unrepentant. It's pretty drastic, really. And the more you understand that, the more you believe that doctrine and you confess your inability to forgive, God's supernatural power and strength begins to come into you and begin to help you to, to navigate that. Or maybe it's you're just having a tough time seeing him as the weaver of history. There's things that have happened to you that are just 
horrendous and you just can't make heads or tails out of it, let me just tell you this. That God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. He's here. He's here to, to meet with you so that he can bring healing to your heart. And you don't need to get stressed out. You don't need to worry. He's a weaver of history. You can trust him. Trust in him with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Rest in him. Oh my goodness, that's, that's just a, that's a sweet place to be. It's a restful place. He gave his life for you. We're taking these elements that represent really the truth of, of Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have the winning hand. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? If he took care of our worst problem, our separation from him, he built the bridge through his son's death, sacrificial love, he's going to take care of all of our other problems. We can rest in him. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. That same night he said, this, this wine, this grape juice represents my shed blood. I mean, think about this. Your Savior, the creator of the universe, came and bled and died for us so that we could have fullness of life. We could ha- be reconciled to the Father. And so we, we take this in remembrance and celebration of that. Let's drink together. Father God, we know that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. There's suffering all around us, and yet you sent your son to come to this earth to give to us fullness of life, not just a a quantity of life, but a quality of life, even in the midst of difficulties. Thank you for your presence, your peace, your power in our lives. We love you, we honor you, we give glory to your name. In Jesus' name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Don't forget, uh, we've got a baptism uh, class right over here to my left and your right. So if you want to get baptized in a few weeks, it'll be about a five to ten minute class. God bless you guys. Have a great week.